Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, this time the painkillers known as opioids. The overprescription of opioids has long been a scandal in the United States. Now there are fears the UK could be following suit after Public Health England disclosed that in 2017-18, one in eight adults had been prescribed an opioid. I've been speaking to Dr James Brown, who's a scientist and academic based at Aston University. I went to see him after he tweeted that he had been addicted to opioids for 22 years. It's an amazing and yet all too typical story. I went to see him in his office overlooking the busy Lancaster Circus flyover in Birmingham. And first I asked him to tell us a little bit about himself. So I'm a scientist, I'm 44 years old, and the reason I took uh, those painkillers for so long is because when I was a younger man and a nurse, I broke my back. So I was 21 years old, I think it was, when I broke my back, and from that point I was given these tablets, and they, for many years, actually enabled me to be functional and to get to the point in my career I'm at, being a scientist, working five days a week, and being kind of a normal member of society. How did you break your back? Um, I was working, uh, ironically, at an orthopaedic hospital and I was doing a lift, so lifting a patient from the toilet into a wheelchair and I I must have been in the wrong position. We were trained to lift properly and I wasn't doing it properly and I I heard a pop and was bent double and at the time thought, well, I've pulled the muscles, it's no big deal. But the senior sister on the ward said, we have to fill in an accident form, you must go down to... A&E and they did an x-ray and then showed me the, the bit which was broken. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a break called a spondylolisthesis, a very long name, but what it means is that your spine slides forward from where the break is and then really pinches your disc so it causes a lot of pain. So eventually, about a year later, they had to screw two of my vertebrae together which is what caused long-term issues because if you, if you do that, if you fuse bones and they can't move naturally, you generally get arthritis. So I have about eight of my vertebrae, uh, the bones in the spine, which have arthritis in them. Uh, the, the scientific name is facet joint degeneration and what that means is that they're very inflamed and they're very painful. So generally the way in which this manifests itself is that if I sit down for too long or particularly stand up for too long or even lie down for too long I get a lot of pain in my back to the point where in the past I've not been able to have a good night's sleep because at four o'clock in the morning you would wake up I would wake up in intense pain and really not be able to move or if I'm out shopping with my wife then I'll almost always have to walk away because she likes to look at all the clothes and I can't stand there physically for 15 minutes even because it hurts so I would generally just go for a walk and that would help with the pain so it's had long-term effects which have which have made me really moderate what I do I don't really play contact sport because I know that hurts a lot I do exercise but I can only do a limited range of exercises so it's it's made me change really my behavior long term and it's one of those invisible disabilities because I'm sitting here looking at you now and I've met you on previous occasions with no idea that you had this problem so invisible but obviously hugely painful and difficult to deal with for you. It it is. I think anybody that's listening that has uh, a a back disorder, particularly lower back pain, will will recognise that, will recognise the fact that if you can't work, if you can't go to a social event, if you can't do the normal activities of daily living, that sometimes you don't get sympathy or empathy from people because they'll look at you and think, well, you look fine, or it's just a bad back. Allied to that, that the really important thing, and this feeds into the, the opioid issue, 
is that it's a chronic pain. If you've got chronic pain, which means that you're waking up in pain, having pain throughout the day, and you know going to bed in pain, the pain itself is bad, but it has many knock-on effects on your life. It can cause mental health issues. I've been at times depressed or anxious because of my back pain, because I'm, I feel I'm not doing a good enough job or I'm not you know, going to enough social events with my wife. It can affect relationships, it can affect libido, it can affect sexual performance in men. It can clearly have an impact on your ability to work if you've got chronic pain because you'll be missing work or you'll have to change how you work. So an injury like a lower back fracture, it really changes your life. So you tweeted recently that you've been for 22 years on opioids. So when were they first prescribed for you and what kind of medication have you been taking? So they started offering me painkillers immediately after the fracture but before the operation. The first painkiller they offered me at the time was new and it's a, an opioid called tramadol and many of your listeners may have heard of tramadol because it's possibly now the most abused opioid analgesic. Luckily it really didn't agree with me and I took it for a day and it caused headaches and vomiting and I, I just felt absolutely awful so I immediately stopped taking that. Analgesic is a painkiller. It is yeah it is and um, the opioid painkillers are all based around morphine so they're either, they're either taken directly from the poppy plant that morphine comes from or they chemically look a bit like morphine. So tramadol is a synthetic so made in a, in a lab um, opioid which came out in the, the 1990s when that clearly wouldn't work they moved me on to a different opioid called dihydrocodine and dihydrocodine is one of these naturally occurring opioids that comes from the poppy plant and it worked brilliantly and it's a very popular painkiller isn't it it is yeah the, the in terms of opioids there's there's four of them which are commonly prescribed and therefore commonly associated with issues there's morphine which is particularly prescribed for very acute or end of life care dihydrocodine, codeine and tramadol and I've tried all four of them but the one that kind of worked for me um, initially was dihydrocodine. So what were the problems with that? Um, there, might, there are problems with all opioids so there are side effects the, the less serious ones are things like constipation and dry mouth and uh, you may suffer from uh, headaches, have a runny nose, kind of small and manageable things. What wasn't mentioned to me at all at the time was that they're addictive. Now everybody knows that heroin is addictive and heroin is chemically similar to morphine and people may be aware now that, that opioids are addictive but back in 1995-96 it was never explained to me that you should only be really be on these tablets for a short period of time. They're very addictive so go on them now and we'll see if we can manage your pain differently in the future. It was literally here's some tablets let's see if they work. Was it known at the time that they were addictive? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been known uh, since really morphine was first discovered that, that all of the opioids um, have variable levels of addiction associated with them. So I think I think that the the GP that that prescribed that would have been aware. So you were not given the slightest indication that these could be addictive drugs. No, not at all. It was only really when I when I started studying for my degree and there were elements of pharmacology or drug studies in that degree that I started to learn these things and start to realize that okay, now this is after my operation. In the second year of my degree, I thought, well, I've been on this drug now for 2 years and that's a long time and apparently it's addictive. And 
I'll be honest, this is where I have to put my hand up and say this is definitely my fault. I didn't at that point say, well, I'm going to go and see my GP and, and see if I can get something else. I just thought, I'm probably not addicted. They work, so I'll carry on taking them. Do you think, with hindsight, that you were addicted? Yeah, I think I probably first realised I was addicted much later on when I first tried tentatively to stop taking them and realised that although my pain wasn't as bad as I thought, it was really a safety blanket. Having these tablets, knowing that you've got them in your pocket, knowing that anywhere you are, whether you're at work, whether you're travelling down to London you know, for a day out, wherever you are, if you start to get pain, you can just take two tablets and that pain is instantly gone. It's incredibly reassuring. So I think probably as I started to get into my 30s, so you know, 10, maybe even 15 years after the operation, that's when I realised, and I've been taking the drug for 10 or 15 years, that I am almost certainly addicted. And again, at that point in time, I didn't say, okay, maybe I need to speak to the GP and talk about this, because I felt, well, it's okay, I'll just, I'll just take them for the rest of my life. That's what I'll have to do. And some people might say, well, what's the problem with that? They are easing your pain. At that stage, you were taking them as and when pain came on, as I understand it. So you feel the pain, you pop the pill, What's the issue? I, I agree, and I think this is where this is where the the issue of opioid use is complicated. First of all, if you look at the evidence, there's actually very little evidence that opioids are effective in chronic pain. Now, they, they did work for me. That may have been psychosomatic, or it may have been the drug working. But what we know is that the opioids are very effective for acute pain or end-of-life pain. The evidence for long-term chronic pain is pretty flimsy actually so I think that the fact that people take these drugs for a long time is largely because they become accustomed to taking these drugs the drugs become part of their coping mechanism it's how you cope with chronic pain is I know I've got these drugs and if I take them in a regimented way I'll avoid having really bad pain or I'll be able to, to really nip pain in the bud so I think taking it for that long from the user's perspective is completely normalized when did you decide that you wanted to not take these drugs every day then and why did you decide that so the, the first time i decided was probably about four years ago i think i realized that i was around 40 and i felt that i was a healthy-ish 40 year old obviously i've got this chronic back condition but i at that point i didn't want to be beholden to taking tablets i thought that i'm you know, I'd rather just be somebody that has a little bit of pain but manages it in other ways. And that's when I first tentatively started not taking tablets and realised it was a problem pain-wise. At that point in time, I should have gone to the GP and said, listen, I think I'm ready to come off these tablets. I've been on them for 18 years. What are my options? But instead, tried it for a couple of days, didn't really work. So again, just said, path of least resistance, I'll just carry on taking them. So what happened next then? So what happened next is actually my back got worse a little bit. So as I said before, I'm, I'm 44. This would have been around the age of 42 when I noticed that I, I couldn't sleep through the night at all. So every morning I'd wake up at four o'clock in agony, really. And this was even though you were taking yeah, the so medication? So, so at this point I was taking uh, the maximum dose of dihydrocodeine. So that's eight tablets a day interspersed into four doses. But the problem is that this is a relatively short-acting drug. It's out of your system within six hours in terms of its being in a therapeutic dose. So I would take them as late as I could before I went to bed at maybe 10 or 11 o'clock in the hope that there would be enough painkiller in my system 
to get me through the night, but it wasn't working. So I would get to four, maybe 4.30, be woken up by the pain, which is, again, it, it affects your sleep, it affects your mood. It's a really difficult situation to deal with. And I'd have to tentatively roll over into a different position. And that might give me 10 minutes of pain-free sleep or rest. And then immediately the pain would come back. So I went to see my GP. Now, again, your listeners might recognize how GPs have changed over the years. So I don't have one GP that I see. There's a collection of 14 or 15. and And I take the first appointment I can get. And I think that's something that contributes to this problem. We can discuss that later if you like. But the first GP I spoke to... Now... Again, I'll put my hands up here. Being a scientist, when I go to the GP, I almost always know what I want before I go in. So I knew that there were slow-release forms of dihydrocodone. So it's the same drug, but it's been modified so that it's released over a 12-hour period. So it's a bit like taking four tablets at once, but they last for 12 hours instead of lasting for six hours. And I asked for this drug, and I said, listen, I'm really struggling, I'm not sleeping kind of have this drug and the GP said no you can't this is a controlled drug it's a serious drug and I'm not happy to give it to you and to be honest I was really shocked and disappointed because it's the first time that I'd ever had that uh, I felt very empowered about my pain relief over the years and all of a sudden the GP had said no and looking back absolutely the right decision to say no but again considering that often now you see lots of different GPs I just waited three months saw a different GP can I have this painkiller? He said, absolutely, yes, and prescribed it. And at the time, I'll be honest, it revolutionized my life because I could take one tablet in the morning, one tablet in the evening, and I was no longer than taking tablets to respond to pain. I was actually preventing the pain happening in the first place, which for me felt like a clever thing to do. If I'm, if I'm therefore not in pain, I don't have that awkward hour when I'm waiting for the painkillers to kick in and I can sleep through the night. So all of a sudden... I was sleeping through the night, still had all the side effects associated with taking an opioid, but the pain was very well managed. And that was partly a product then of the fact that we no longer have an individual GP allocated to us. Most people now go to group practices, as they're called, where there are several GPs. They don't know you individually in the way that a GP traditionally would have known their patient. Absolutely. I think this is a key issue when it comes to the overuse of opioids, is that if you're lucky, you have 10 minutes in a consultation. So if you've got a patient coming in who you've never seen before, or a patient that you may have seen two years ago because they've seen other GPs in the time, it's very difficult to to fully understand the, the journey that that patient is on. Whereas if you see the same GP all the time, you've gone through those initial discussions, shall we start this painkiller? You can ask them when they come back, how are you coping on the painkiller? Do you want to move on to something else? And I think we have lost that personalization of uh, the relationship between GP and patient because often it's, as I said, in my case, you look for the earliest appointment you can get and you take whichever doctor's available. So in the initial period of taking this slow release version of the opioid of the painkiller it worked you had as you say a sense of liberation it did i had a genuine honeymoon period of about six months where i I thought i'd changed my life and it made me a happier person it made me less stressed Um, i was able to be more productive at work i was able to be more productive at home i was able to do more exercise and i think mentally as well because I had now not just got this safety blanket which meant that if I got pain I could respond it was like having an even warmer safety blanket which actually 
would stop you from ever getting pain unless you did something you know particularly silly like fall over or, or play a contact sport so that that period of six months I remember it very fondly as being a big change in my life but then and I thought this was unrelated at the time I started to get migraine headaches. Now I've had migraines since I was a child. I can remember when I was eight years old being prescribed a drug to try and prevent them, which didn't work. But in terms of their frequency throughout childhood and as, as a early to, to middle-aged adult, I'd maybe get maximally one a month, maybe one every couple of months. And it would just mean staying in bed for the day, not going to work. But after six months of taking this slower release form of dihydrocodeine, I noticed I was having one a week, having a migraine a week, which is quite debilitating at that point in time. And then they increased even more in frequency. So I started having maybe seven, eight, nine migraines in a month, plus other days where I had headaches. And at this point, I had no idea or didn't suspect that it was anything to do with opioid use. I just thought, well, I get migraines don't I and that it's probably the stress of work or it's something to do with my diet so I toyed around with removing things from my diet and had a chat with people at work about reducing workload but eventually they didn't go away so I went to the GP and at this point the GP's approach was very much we'll put you on a preventative medicine that prevents migraines and I'll give you some tablets that when you get the migraine are very good at removing the symptoms. So that then became my pattern. And at no point did we discuss the painkillers, dihydrocodeine. It was very much try this drug, see if it prevents migraines and when you get one, take this tablet. And for the next 18 months, basically nothing changed. I had minimum seven, maximum 15 migraines a month, plus other days with headaches. And it, the, the impact of, of the migraines was worse than I've ever had the impact from lower back pain. I mean, if you imagine missing or having to miss seven or eight work days a month and then having to catch up, in, in, if you're lucky enough to have a job of flexible hours, in the other hours you've got during that week, it's hugely damaging to your career, to your mental health, to your physical health, because I was having to lie in bed for long periods with migraines, which was making my back worse. It was an awful, a really dark 18 months. And who made the link then between the opioid painkiller and your migraines? Was that you or was that your GP? So embarrassingly, it was me and I still didn't stop, stop taking them. Now, I think this gives you a little bit of insight into taking opioids because I knew and I'd known for a long time that a number of different painkillers can increase the risk or the frequency of headaches and migraines. And actually, opioid painkillers are pretty much at the top of that list. If you're taking an opioid painkiller, it really can give you headaches and it can give you migraines. So that is a known risk associated it, it with is, it. It is. And for people that suffer from migraines, it's one of the first things that a GP or a neurologist will look at. Is they'll say, what tablets are you on? Because we know some tablets cause migraines or cause headaches. So I knew this and still didn't stop taking the dihydrocodone. Because? If you'd have asked me then... I'd have said, well, it's probably not that. I think it's something else. So I'll focus on those things. In hindsight, it's because I didn't want to stop taking dihydrocodeine. In fact, I would have done anything else. I would have acupuncture, um, hypnosis. I even bought a device um, which you stick to your forehead and which sends ele electrical impulses through your forehead, which cost me, I think, £280. I even bought that rather than stop taking dihydrocodeine. So you bought that to combat the migraine to get combat the migraines and you wouldn't stop taking the opioid no. painkiller 
Because what? You were addicted? I, clearly I was addicted. And I think when you're addicted to, to anything, you create um, false arguments. You start to, to say, well, I actually, it's not a problem. I've been taking them for 20 years, so of course it's not a problem. You know, I don't ever feel the need to take more than the dose that I've got. Um, they're controlling my pain. Why would I stop taking them? So, so I looked for other reasons that could be causing the migraine. The next stage came when I, I, I was referred to the headache specialist at City Hospital. City Hospital in Birmingham. City Hospital in Birmingham, yeah. So there's a headache specialist nurse. She's wonderful. She's incredibly overworked. But when I saw her, one of the first things she said was, what tablets do you take? And when I said dihydrocodone, she said, well, that could be causing them. And I almost felt a shiver go down my spine because there was genuine fear. I suddenly thought, you're not going to stop me taking these. But I immediately then said, well, I don't care what you tell me. I'm not stopping taking them. So in, in my mind, I'd made the decision that even if this person who knows far more than I'll ever know about migraines says you need to stop taking these tablets, I'd made the decision, well, I'm not going to anyway because I need them. It, seemed, it felt that the need for those painkillers outweighed the risk of them causing migraines. What happened next was that in that consultation, because of the pressures on the NHS and the number of people that have migraines, it's more common than people think, there was a six-month waiting list for the more aggressive treatment, which is Botox injections and a monthly injection in the stomach of a compound that, that affects your blood vessels. And I really wanted those treatments because migraines were causing me all sorts of problems. And I thought, if I can get those treatments and reduce my migraine frequency... I'll, I'll have done a good job. Bearing in mind that the Botox injection is 31 injections around the head, face and neck. It's very, very painful and it's every three months. I was willing to do that, but I wasn't willing to stop taking the dihydrocodone. And I think what the, the key for me, and it's odd really because it's a very small trigger, it's not a life-changing event, but it was the, the sense of frustration and depression when I was told it was a six-month waiting list because I thought, I, I can't do this for another six months. I genuinely can't. I... My relationship with my, my wife, which is very strong, I felt was being damaged. I felt I was letting her down all the time. I definitely felt I was letting my colleagues down at work and my students. I'd cancelled a number of lectures that year because of migraines. And I think it was this frustration that I can't wait six more months that made me think, you've got, you've got to face up to this and you've got to at least try. So I made the decision that I was going to start by stopping one of the two daily tablets that I took. So I took a slow-release dihydrocodone first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And I thought, if I stop the nighttime one, because most of my migraines happened as I woke, that maybe that will have an impact, I thought. And immediately it did. So I would have two or three migraines a week, and in the first week of just stopping the evening dose, I didn't have a migraine. Now, to go for me, to go seven days without a migraine was a revelation. It felt, you know, empowering. But then it really challenged my beliefs about what I was doing with these painkillers because I also was sleeping through the night without any pain. So I wasn't waking up at four o'clock with a bad back. So I then thought, well, do I, do I need to take these? And I had a bit of an internal dialogue where I thought, if I'm ever going to do this, now's the time to do it. I'd already pretty much confirmed that these migraines were being caused by the opioids. So I decided, you know what, there's never going to be a better time I'm just going to stop taking them. So you decided to go cold turkey. I think it's worth pointing out at this stage, you are a scientist. You have a, a proper knowledge of what drugs do to your body. I think the general advice to people 
is not to go cold turkey if you are on some kind of opioid painkiller. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to state that the proper thing to do is to go and see your GP. If you feel that your painkiller use is a problem, um, or if you want to change your painkiller regime, don't just stop taking tablets. Certainly don't take more tablets. Always discuss it with a healthcare professional. It could be your pharmacist. It could be your GP. I took advantage of the knowledge that I had. Did, did a little bit of reading, so went onto a number of NHS websites and, and read some some pharmacy books and realized that that the process is, is normally simple but you're absolutely right i think for for listeners out there if this is something that's affecting your life my advice is go and speak to your gp so you decided to go cold turkey yeah. simply take away the the crutch of these drugs that has been sustaining you for 22 years how long ago was that and how has it been so luckily i had a holiday booked and that holiday was in Ibiza and it was a 10-day holiday and I thought what I'm going to do is use this as an experiment first of all to to slowly reduce the drugs a little bit so I didn't completely stop while I was on holiday but I noticed that I coped fine with the pain so then my decision was well I get the holiday blues when I get back so if I'm going to feel bad for that week I may as well feel completely rubbish so I got back from Ibiza Saturday which is what about 10 days ago and stopped taking them then immediately so didn't take any and haven't taken any dihydrocodone since having been on the drugs for 22 years and and pretty much being sure that i was addicted to them i wanted to break that connection i wanted that short sharp shock of stopping it so i stopped on the saturday and it's it was difficult i'll be honest for probably six or seven days it was very difficult i didn't really sleep for the first four nights I had a lot of the the typical side effects of stopping opioids, so shaking, sweating, runny nose, which I've still got. You might be able to pick it up up, um, in the tone of my voice. The most obvious one is a change in bowel habits because opioids tend to constipate you. And when you remove that pressure, believe me, your frequency will increase greatly. And kind of feeling sick and just generally feeling a bit flu-like and unwell. And have you stuck with it there, despite that? I have, yeah. I, I got to a point... I think it was on the Thursday, so that would have been five, six days later, where the the worst of the symptoms broke. And at that point, I I actually, I kind of felt like Superman. It's a really weird thing to say, but to come through just a short, I mean, just a short period of withdrawal, and I'm not trying to over-egg the pudding and say it was the worst period of my life. I just felt grotty for a few days. But to come through that and to have not been tempted to take a tablet which would have stopped it all instantly... And to have coped with the pain, I actually felt really proud of myself and I actually felt really happy. And it proves that it can be done. But of course, you still have this underlying chronic back problem. That's going to recur for the rest of your life. How are you proposing to deal with that? Going forward, I, you know, I'm going to have to do more. I realise that, that my arthritis is only going to get worse. Um, it's not going to get better. And I'm going to have to manage it. But I'm going to try and do that with my GP and with the local community pain clinic, which I've been referred to, in a way that means that hopefully I'll never have to go back to to opioids. Or if I do, it'll be at such a late stage in my life as as it won't be an issue. As many people will know, the United States has had a crisis relating to opioid use and tragically an an epidemic of deaths related to the use of opioids is there anything in your story that relates to that do you think i think i mean the the u.s certainly has an opioid crisis i think it's important to point out the uk has an opioid epidemic so we haven't 
termed it a crisis yet, but if you look over the last 20 years, then the prescription, the number of prescriptions given out for these drugs has doubled in 20 years. And if you look at the number of deaths from these drugs, they increase year on year for pretty much all of the opioids. So tramadol seems to be the most abused of these drugs at the minute, but it is um, something that you see with all opioids. I mean, one can argue that if I was taking you know, morphine or fentanyl, which is a, an even stronger painkiller, instead of dihydrocodone, that could have been more serious. And that was the path that I was on. I, can, I actually asked the doctor for morphine around the time that I asked for a long-acting dihydrocodone because my pain was so bad. So I could have been one of those statistics. And the deaths occur because people do become addicted. They then need an ever higher dose to feed their addiction, but the drugs in themselves ultimately can be fatal. Yeah, and this is, this is the, one of the real issues with opioids, is actually if you go beyond the therapeutic dose, the dose at which they have an effect on pain, you don't get an increased kind of level of pain relief. So if you're on uh, an opioid painkiller for a, a chronic amount of time and you get to that maximum dose and it's not getting rid of your pain, the natural reaction is, well, I'll, I'll take one extra tablet or I'll take an extra sip of morphine or I'll just take more and that will work. And actually, the chances of that having an impact on your pain are minimal, but the chances of it having an impact on your side effects are really high. And if you look at the side effects of, of overdosing or the effects of overdosing on opioids, it suppresses the respiratory system so it can stop you from breathing. So it's very easy to, over a period of months, or years to actually build up your dose and then become a little bit tolerant to that dose and then feel that you need more. In your own case, on the one hand, you've got to acknowledge that the painkillers did help you manage your pain, however that came about over a period of 22 years. On the other hand, you acknowledge too that you became addicted to them and you wanted to break that addiction so it's not a black and white issue is it i think the, the fact that you said it's not a black and white issue describes it perfectly actually opioid painkillers are incredibly useful so if you are recovering from an operation if you've had a fracture particularly bony pain they're good for or if you're at the end of life then they're a godsend so they definitely have their role the difficulty is as you suggested in patients like myself who have chronic pain who then become reliant on opioids if GPs are empowered and supported so that they have the time and the resources to try and identify who vulnerable people are, try and identify the people with chronic pain who are already on an opioid, then they can actually use that information to work with the patient to try and find alternative painkillers. The second thing that they can do is to actually think about before you start putting somebody on a course of opioid analgesics using different different approaches and there are lots of different approaches which I think really should be looked at by the NHS um, which can complement painkillers which can then help people with chronic pain avoid needing to become dependent on opioids for pain. James Brown thank you. Thank you very much.